third lesson of the subject, The Sacrifice of Christ. Yesterday we dealt at considerable length on the nature of man, and today we're going to talk about the nature of Christ. And uh, to properly consider that, we must first speak of his origin because we can't determine his nature without knowing first his origin. Again, I repeat what I've said so many times that I'm not telling you anything new and probably anything you don't know. We've only tried to put this into uh, one package with some semblance of continuity which may be of help in days to come, particularly if you're taking notes. Christ was the son of Mary, and he was the son of God. And we have that, for those who are taking notes, in Luke 1, verses 28 to 35. Now the question arises, was he human or was he divine? The genealogy of uh, Christ, or Jesus, uh, is given in two of the Gospels, in the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Matthew, and I know that you're familiar with the fact that they don't agree. Without going into the reasons or uh, the proofs, Mary's genealogy is given in Luke. The genealogy in Matthew is Joseph's genealogy. Now, this uh, is used by those who believe that, God, that uh, Christ was not divine in any sense to prove that he was uh, simply a natural-born son of Mary and Joseph. But if you'll notice, uh, in uh, Luke, the third chapter, 23rd verse, it states that Jesus was, and I quote, being as was supposed the son of Joseph being as was supposed. Now the reason for this is that uh, genealogies were always given and inheritances were always based through the male side of the family. Now, uh, Joseph was actually the foster father, being the husband of Mary, was actually the foster father of Christ and so therefore he was the legal father to the public and in the uh, uh, records of vital statistics. But God was his actual father, if we believe the scriptures. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so on, John 3.16. Now, the reason I quoted that at this time was his only begotten. I want to emphasize those two words. It's the only son that God ever begat. In through the natural processes of birth, uh, of conception and birth. All, he has many sons and daughters, but as we know, they are adopted. They were not conceived by God, not born of God. We recall that the angel said to Joseph, when he was questioning the uh, condition and situation in which Mary was, as a condition of pregnancy, he said, the angel said, Fear not to take Mary as thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. 
And to Mary, the angel said, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And David had said prophetically hundreds of years before, the Lord hath said, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And of course, begotten generally has the connotation of conception in the case of childhood. Well, with this background of his origin, now let's look at his nature. And you will recall a day or two ago, in another, uh, for another reason, we quoted Job, the 14th chapter, the first to the fourth verses. But basically the message there is who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? That's the basic thought in those verses, so I don't think we have to read them. And this raised the question, was Mary unclean? We know that uh, uh, the uh, Catholic Church says that she was immaculate, that this was an immaculate conception, and that uh, she was, as was Jesus, uh, clean in every respect. Well, she was born of a woman, as is all uh, mankind, and as we previously testified and I think demonstrated, all Adam's descendants are born unclean. All are born of, nat of uh, human nature, of sinful flesh, a nature which we demonstrated uh, is unworthy of life. Can you hear me? Up back, can you hear me? Dr. Thomas on this point stated this in Elpis Israel, page 115. The nature of Mary was as unclean as that of any other woman and therefore could give birth only to a body like her own. Sinful flesh was the hereditary nature of the Lord Jesus. That was from Dr. Thomas, Elpis Israel, page 115. I I'm quoting uh, Dr. Thomas and others to show that what the thinking was of the uh, uh, brethren of Christ uh, in days gone by, in generations past. And Brother Roberts was of the same mind. He states of Jesus in the blood of Christ, page 16, sin, hath, sin had hold of him in his nature, which inherited the sentence of death from Adam. And Job, and we repeat again, Job very properly asks, how can he be clean that is born of a woman? Also, we know that Mary was defiled because of giving birth to Jesus. She was defiled or unclean under the Mosaic law, as was every other woman under the Mosaic law in bearing children question might be asked, well, didn't Jesus' paternity, didn't the fact that God was Jesus' father make her and Jesus immune to this condition? No, and uh, I think Leviticus 12, the 12th chapter, uh, is an answer to that question, for it explains how all women, all women in childbearing were unclean, and they had to go through a process of purification before they could again enter the sanctuary. Now, if Mary was immune, if she was outside of this law because of the divine paternity, she would not have had to go through this process of cleansing. 
But she did go through it as recorded in Luke, the second chapter, the 22nd verse, where it states that Mary, she being similarly unclean with all her Jewish sisters, all her uh, sisters uh, under the Mosaic law, had to submit to this process of purification. And this is an interesting uh, sidelight. This purification, when a woman gave birth to a male child, was for 33 days. And I'd ask the question, is this symbolic of Christ's purification from Adamic nature in 33 years? I think it might be so intended too. Well, someone else may raise the objection that, well, Jesus was called holy. Well, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding as to the word, as to the meaning of this word holy. All firstborn males under the Mosaic law were holy. Holy means, one meaning of it, is to be set apart for the Lord's service. And so was every firstborn male child of the, uh, of the Jews uh, holy in the sense that he was set apart for the Lord's service in some way. Now then, this word holy, uh, as applied to Jesus, was uh, meant that he was set apart for some service to, uh, to God. It's particularly true of him, but it's not exclusively true of him as we've just shown from the scriptures. Now the fact that he was of divine paternity did not, and it could not, affect the nature of his maternal ancestors. Hebrews 2:16. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, he didn't take on the divine nature, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. In other words, he took on him the nature of Abraham, the uh, nature of Isaac and of Jacob and uh, all of the patriarchs of old. And I would like to read uh, the 16th to the 18th verses of the epistle to the Hebrews from the uh, uh, New Testament translation of J.B. Phillips. No relation to the uh, Phillipses who are here from Ohio, by the way. Since then, the children have a common physical... I might say you can follow along if you want to in your authorized version. This is the 16th to the 18th verses of Hebrews 2. Since then, the children have a common physical nature as human beings. He also became a human being so that by going through death as a man he might destroy him who had the power of death that is the devil and might also set free those who lived their whole lives a prey to the fear of death it is plain that for this purpose he did not become an angel he became a man in actual fact a descendant of Abraham it was imperative that he should be made like his brothers in every respect if he were to become a high priest both compassionate and faithful in the things of God and at the same time able to make atonement for the sins of the people for by virtue of his own sufferings under temptation he is able to help those who are exposed to temptation now I don't think the Phillips translation says anything different than the authorized version but it says in language perhaps that is more understandable And so we must conclude that he had the 
indwelling sin tendency as his brethren, which we'll demonstrate in a moment, how else could he be tempted to sin if he didn't have this desire to sin within him? He was tempted and therefore he suffered. Why should a man, why should Jesus or anyone be, uh, suffer through temptation? Because this is this warfare we spoke of yesterday, uh, which was the experience of the Apostle Paul, Romans 8, 18 to 25. We're not going to read that again. You're very familiar with it. But this uh, suffering is when this warfare is going on within a person, this tug of war between the carnal mind and the spirit mind. And uh, this is why Jesus suffered so intensely, because instead of giving in to the uh, tendency to sin within him, he in all cases and at all times resisted it, but this sapped his energy, sapped uh, his strength, and so because of this warfare, he suffered and suffered very intensely. Think too of uh, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. First of all, how can you tempt a person that's untemptable, if that's a word? It says Jesus was tempted, and you cannot, I cannot see how uh, any divine person, if Jesus had been divine, could be tempted. It is said that uh, uh, God cannot be tempted, and uh, God is divine. If Jesus were, di were divine, he could not have been tempted. But he was tempted in the wilderness, and here was demonstrated again that which the Apostle Paul experienced, the flesh warring against the spirit. Read uh, the missionary, uh, read the uh, travels of Jesus during his missionary work of three years, and note how often he retired in seclusion to pray. Brother Priest, I think, spoke of this this morning. It's been spoken of before here this week. Uh, how frequently he retired to pray. For what? If he were divine, for what would he have to pray? He prayed for strength. He prayed for the will to overcome the temptations which were constantly impinging upon his mind. Do you doubt it? Turn to Hebrews 5. You don't have to turn to it, I'll quote it, but... For those who are making notes, Hebrews 5, 7th verse, it speaks of Jesus who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, was heard in that he feared. How can you associate crying? How can you associate tears with the divine being? This is suffering. Terrific suffering. Terrific suffering because he conquered in all things. We don't suffer as much because we don't conquer. We let the carnal mind take over. Crying in tears. This is the picture of a tortured soul. A man who was fighting, fighting, always against the flesh and always successful. Would that we could even approach the success which he attained. We read that though he were a son of God, Yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. That's Hebrews 5, 8. And this is tantamount to saying that the Son of God was not immune to temptation, that he could have disobeyed. In other words, obedience was not natural to him. It came to him hard, 
just as it comes to us. The only difference being that he always overcame and conquered. In confirmation, I again would like to uh, <clears throat> quote some of our Christadelphian writers. Brother W.F. Barling in his pamphlet, Redemption in Christ Jesus. I don't know how many are familiar uh, with that pamphlet. I think generally, outside of some uh, paragraph or two on resurrectional responsibility, I think it's an excellent pamphlet. Re uh, Redemption in Christ Jesus by W.F. Barling, page 9. He said, Jesus, as the son of Mary, was identical in nature with all humanity in order to share Adamic condemnation with those he came to save. Now there are those of the same affiliation as Brother Barling who object to us using the word Adamic condemnation, but he can use it, and he uses it correctly, just the way that we understand Adamic condemnation. Brother Roberts, in Blood of Christ, page 22, speaks of the, and I quote, hereditary death taint in Christ, derived from Adam. The hereditary death taint derived from Adam in reference to Christ. And again, from the blood of Christ. Page 26. He was made part of the sin constitution of things. Deriving, remember yesterday we spoke of the constitution of sin under which all were born. He was made part of the sin constitution of things deriving from his mother both the propensities that lead to sin and the sentence of death that was passed because of sin. Now all this, whether it's Brother Roberts, or Brother Barling, or Dr. Thomas, and regardless of what terms they use, this is, a, is Adamic condemnation, call it whatever you want to. And in connection with our, the remarks that we've made so far, I would like to read to you Proposition 8 of our Statement of Faith. And you can judge if what we have said uh, corresponds to our Statement of Faith or if the Statement of Faith corresponds to what we've said. Proposition 8, that these promises, referring to the promises to the Father, that these promises had reference to Jesus Christ, who was to be raised up of the condemned race of Adam in the line of Abraham and David, and who, though wearing the condemned nature, was to obtain a title to resurrection by perfect obedience, and by dying, abrogate or set aside the law of condemnation for himself, and all who should believe and obey him. Now we recall <coughs> that animal sacrifices offered under the law and even prior to the law in the days of the patriarchs were not effective as a covering for sin. We pointed out how they were only a type of that acceptable sacrifice which was to come. 
They were not acceptable because animals are not sinful. We've just read from the statement of faith and from some of our other old brethren of days past how it was necessary that, and from the scriptures, how it was necessary that the uh, acceptable offering be of the same nature, the same kind uh, of creature that we are. Animals are not. Animals are not sinful. Animals were not under the law of sin and death. Animals were not of sinful flesh. Only man, only man was given the responsibility uh, of uh, the opportunity to obey or to disobey. Only man was placed under uh, law. Now, I think we have proved that uh, Jesus was acceptable because he was of the same nature as his fellow man. He was of the same condemned nature. How else could he be in view of the testimony we have presented? Uh, let's look now at 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. Beginning at the 18th through the 21st verse. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now some people might think they detect a, con a contradiction in there. But first we'd like to comment on the 19th verse, where it says uh, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. Now, some people say, well, they couldn't sin. This means that they couldn't sin before they accepted Christ or before they came into covenant relationship. That isn't what that means. Impute means made accountable. They sinned, as do all men, whether they're under the uh, law of sin and death or whether they're under the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. All can and do sin. But prior to their coming on, into covenant relationship with him, those sins, they're not held accountable for those sins. As a matter of fact, it doesn't make any difference whether they are or not. If they're not under the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, they're going to suffer the penalties of sin anyway and die and stay dead. But uh, that wasn't what I wanted to bring out particularly in this passage. It's the uh, 21st verse. For he hath made him, God has made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin. But we, this has reference, when it says he who knew no sin, he knew no sins of his own. He never committed sin. He never committed a trespass. He never disobeyed in any way the word of God. This refers to Jesus' personal sins. It does not mean that he had no sin, no relation to sin through the nature that he bore through his mother Mary. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Now, some will argue that that means sin offering. And they, those who believe that Jesus uh, couldn't sin uh, and was in a different, uh, couldn't be tempted and was in a different category than are we, will quote this perhaps and say, well, that means sin offering. He was made a sin offering to him. Well, uh, there may be some truth in that because we find over the Old Testament 
Hosea 4, 8, if you want to make a note of it, where the word sin is used for sin offering. But whether it was intended so here, I rather doubt. Uh, but it can be construed both ways without any conflict. He was made a sin offering for us, but he was also made sin of sinful flesh for us. And uh, I would point out that uh, the authorized version, the standard revised version, the Phillips version all use the term sin and say nothing about sin offering. But there's no conflict here, no matter which interpretation you put upon it. It's equally true of both. He was made a sin offering for us. He was also made of a sin nature for us. Now for some <clears throat> cumulative evidence of what we have been saying. Romans 6, 9. Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Sin hath no more dominion over him. Now what are we to understand from that? If it says sin hath no more dominion over him, doesn't this imply or practically prove that at one time sin did have dominion over him? I think so. <clears throat> Romans 8, chapter the third verse, shows that God condemned sin. Where? He condemned sin in the person of Christ. Well, if Christ had no personal sins, if he'd never committed a single uh, act of disobedience to God, then uh, the sin which uh, was condemned by God in him must have been the constitutional sin, the sin nature which he bore. And in this respect, Dr. Thomas comments and confirms in this language, Opus Israel, page 114, where he says, God could not have condemned sin in the body of Jesus if it had not existed there. His body, his body now, his body was as unclean as the bodies of those he died for. His body was made of clay, as some of you heard last night. Same as ours. Hebrews 9.28 did you all get that reference from Elpis Israel, the one I just quoted? I'll repeat it. Elpis Israel, page 114, if someone didn't get it. Now we turn to, Hebrew, uh, turn to testimony in Hebrews 9, 28, where it states that Christ shall appear the second time without sin unto salvation, or bringing salvation. Christ shall appear the second time without sin, bringing salvation, for that's what it means. But the words I want to emphasize are without sin. The second time he's coming without sin. And we ask the question, how did he come the first time? Doesn't this imply that if he can't, comes the second time without sin? It doesn't prove it, I, I grant you. But doesn't it imply, and isn't this cumulative evidence with other evidence that we've presented, that when he came the first time, he came with sin? He first came with sin's flesh to make offering. And the second time he comes incorruptible, spiritual and we have the uh, proof of this in that his vile body was I'm sorry it wasn't applied to Christ but nevertheless his vile body which he is the same as our vile bodies was changed he became victorious over sin and death bringing the same victory eventually for the faithful those who believe and accept him and walk in his ways 
Hebrews 2.14. The Apostle Paul here is speaking of children, meaning believers. He says, as the children, all believers are partakers of flesh and blood. He, as Jesus, also likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, I don't have to point out that uh, to you that this is not uh, the devil of popular conception. Uh, horned uh, creature with forked tail. But here the apostle states that Jesus was of the same flesh and blood nature as his fellows, and that through death, through his own death, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Who was he? The devil has several connotations, means adversary, enemy, and uh, in the Diaglot, this same passage uses the word enemy. In the Diaglot, it's rendered, the last phrase is rendered, that he might vanquish him possessing the power of death, that is, the enemy. So regardless uh, for the moment who or what the devil is, we know he's an enemy. Well, who is the enemy? We have the proof that the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And we made the point the other day that death and sin are practically synonymous because if you don't have, if you hadn't had sin, you wouldn't have death. So, whoever or whatever this devil is, he or it bears some relation to man's nature, which is a nature, the offspring or the result of sin. And as as the text I think shows, Christ bore the sinful nature the condemned nature of his fellow man, as we have shown, in order that he might, or perhaps in better words, that, uh, that which made it possible for him to destroy the enemy, to destroy sin and death. Now, from what has gone before, I think it's easy to see that the enemy, in this case, is man's own physical constitution of sin. I don't like to labor this point too much, but it's so important because so very frequently in the household there have arisen erroneous ideas as to the exact nature of, uh, of Christ and of man, too. You know, this is part of the modern trend to, uh, for man to set himself up as being cap perfectly capable of taking care of himself without any regard to God. We've heard so many times the expression, God is dead, well, he certainly is dead to a great many people. They don't feel they have any need of him. Well, where do they wind up? They wind up in the grave perpetually. <clears throat> and uh, I think we found out last night, didn't we, that man was worth, man's body was worth about three-quarters of a cent of palm. So, uh, what has gone before, from what's gone before, it's uh, easy to see that this enemy is man's own physical constitution of sin, which has the power of death over every one of Adam's children. To repeat, sin and death are practically synonymous terms, 
for sin entered into the world and death by sin. That is, death was the consequence of sin. And that's found in Romans, the fifth chapter, twelfth verse. So sin is the enemy. Sin is the death-dealing agency. And that caused the Apostle Paul to state in Romans 7, 7th chapter, 11th verse, Sin deceived me, and by it slew me. So even as sin deceived Adam and Eve, and slew them. So it is with all mankind. This results in the death sentence, the slaying by sin of all mankind. If you didn't have sin, there would be no death. If we can predicate this upon the law given to Adam in the first instance. Get rid of sin first there are two kinds, as I think we've tried to prove. Get rid of sin. First, sin in our nature. Sin in this condemned uh, sinful flesh. And two, the sins that we commit. Get rid of those, and you will get rid of death. I mention that particularly because I mention the fact of personal sins and sin nature because there are those who may go to the extreme of saying that we're not baptized for personal sins. We are baptized to take us out of Adam, to take us out from under the law of sin and death, and under the law of spirit of life in Christ Jesus, but we are also forgiven or justified at that time from our past sins. We have pointed out that the fact that God, prior to coming into covenant relationship, does not impute sin unto man, doesn't mean that he doesn't sin. It means that prior to that time, he's not accountable to God for it. But those all the past sins which he has committed, which were wrong in the sight of God, are wiped out at baptism, as well as uh, wiping out the condemnation that comes from Adam. So we say, if, if there's no sin, there is no death. So if we can get rid of sin, constitutional sin, or damn condemnation, whatever you want to call it, and get rid of our personal sins, as if all the world could, then uh, we'll get rid of death. And that's exactly what's going to happen eventually. When Christ finishes his work, you, this will mark the elimination of all sin, and at the same time death will simultaneously be destroyed. For we are told that he must reign until, this is the millennial, millennial reign of Christ now, he must reign until he hath put all enemies under his feet. We found that uh, that passage which spoke of the devil actually means enemy. So we know that uh, all of his enemies will be destroyed at that time, including sin or the devil for he must reign until he hath put all enemies under his feet and what's the last enemy to be destroyed death now from this we know that before that from what we've said 
sin must be destroyed before death can be eliminated. And this principle is expressed in Ephesians, the second chapter, second verse. It's expressed as the spirit, I'm sorry, these two positions, you might say, are expressed uh, first in Ephesians 2.2, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience as contrasted to that which we find in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, contrasted to 1 Thessalonians 2.13, the word of God which effectually worketh in those that believe. I'll repeat those two references. Ephesians Second chapter, second verse, and First Thessalonians 2.13. Here we have the two types, uh, or two categories, perhaps is a better word. The spirit that worketh in the children of disobedience, that is the spirit of disobedience that worketh in men, as contrasted to that of state of mind, uh, of the believer, the word of God which effectually worketh in those that believe. Here again it is expressed, uh, what has been expressed before, in the words, the carnal mind against the spirit mind, the spiritual mind. The uh, Apostle Paul warns against having an evil heart of unbelief, against being hardened by the deceits deceitfulness of what? Of the devil. No, not of the devil, but of sin. Again, let me repeat that. He warns against having an evil heart of unbelief. He warns against being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And I think it's been demonstrated not only in this class, but in other classes, the very, very deceitfulness of sin. And I'm sure it don't have to be de demonstrated in class. I'm sure that every one of you have experienced within yourself, the deceitfulness of sin. How easy it is, uh, if we let our minds wander, if we let the carnal mind even get an entry, how easy it is to be deceived. Uh, we often get in trouble, I'm trying to think of something that's said here, dare uh, to go. We often get in trouble because we open the door a little bit uh, and let some vagrant thought in there, or idea in. Uh, and uh, once that door is open a little bit, then pretty soon it opens wider and wider, and uh, the enemy flocks in. This is like uh, uh, the door-to-door -door salesman. Once he gets his foot in the door, you're cooked. You're going to buy a full of brush or a can of uh, uh, soap powder or something else. And uh, this is the way sin works with all of it. Well, I, I can't answer for all of you. I'm sorry. But it, this is the way it works with me, and I presume it works much the same way with the rest of us, the rest of you. And so, again, we say we don't need a talking servant, serpent to incite us, do we? Do we? We, we are in the category of which are all men since, since the days of Adam and Eve, of which James speak, our devil, our adversary, our enemy, 
is our own selves. You often hear the expression, which is very true, that we are our own worst enemy because of our own bias to do evil, because of the sin of the transgression or sin tendency existing in all of us, inborn in all of us, inbred our heritage from Adam. And so, likewise, Christ was so possessed because we have shown, and again we repeat, he took part of the same, of the same nature. And the only difference was that he always was victorious over this sin tendency through, as we pointed out, through much crying and tears, through suffering. But he overcame in all cases, at all times, that through death, through death, that is through his sin offering, he might destroy him, that is, he might destroy that death principle which otherwise condemns man to the dust forever. And I'd like to make this observation that it's only an opinion. We, we speak of the suffering of Christ. I think you'll all agree with me. We speak of the suffering of Christ, and so many times we are inclined to confine it perhaps to the last 12 or most 24 hours of his life. Perhaps we tend to confine it to the Last Supper, his praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, his arrest and trial, or mock trial, and his crucifixion. But I think of his sacrifice of his whole life, at least his whole mature life. I, we know very little about his life prior to the age of 30. Uh, so presumably, uh, so actually we can't speak much of that period, but from the age of 30 when he began his ministry and for the next three years, this I, culminating in the crucifixion, I think of as being his sacrifice. It was not alone the agony of the cross. What I think could have well have been a greater suffering and a greater agony was the very fact that he not only knew the death he was to die, but there came a time when he knew it was approaching in the guy in the uh, at the last supper you remember he knew then and he told his disciples his time had come how would we feel how would we feel if we knew that we were going to die a horrible death and if we knew it was going to take place tomorrow or next week or whatever time you may set it's very fortunate we don't know these things but jesus knew it don't you suppose that this created him in a uh, created in him a uh, suffering which is beyond, almost beyond comprehension. I can't comprehend it, except that I know it's much more, would have, must have been much more severe than any suffering, any human suffering of any other of mankind. And so his victory over sin, uh, first his suffering over a period of years culminating in his crucifixion, was his victory over sin, and it ensured his resurrection. 
This was his personal victory over death. He now has accomplished part of the conquest of the enemy. He himself has conquered the enemy of sin and death by his own death and his resurrection. For God would not suffer his Holy One to see corruption. And so he came forth from the grave, the first fruits of them that sleep. Now, his victory over death is the and resurrection and glorification or immortalization is the, uh, the first fruits of them that slept, which proves, not alone this passage, but shows us that the late, latter fruits are those who believe and accept him. They too will go through this same sort of a uh, process of death, providing Jesus does not come, of going through the process of actually dying and coming forth from the grave and having our vile bodies changed like unto his own glorious body, provided, provided we are found acceptable in his sight at that time. We have said that the last enemy will be destroyed, which is death, and that this will be part of Jesus' work. And so at the end of the thousand years, I think there's going to be a rebellion, but I won't press the issue. Uh, but at the end of the thousand years, that is when this takes place, when it can be said that this uh, prophecy, for that's what it is, will have been completely fulfilled when uh, he does crush all the last of his enemies, and the last of his enemies, uh, last enemy to be destroyed is death or and sin. Now, it's a little early. This is a pretty good stopping place. It's kind of warm. And so uh, I'm not going to try to start a new topic today. I somehow, uh, either I talked too fast or I didn't have enough to say this morning, but uh, I know uh, you'll overlook it if we stop a little early.